The story I am about to tell you is true. It's about an abduction and murder that occurred in 1989 in Lake City, Florida. I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, and I'll speak with people familiar with the victim and certain aspects of the case. All the opinions you'll hear from people I interview, as well as my opinions, and what I feel may have occurred, are just that. It's up to you to decide who and what you find credible. In the end, facts are what matter when determining guilt or innocence, and everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. The day after Darlene Messer's body was recovered from beneath the Swift Creek Bridge, information would come in that would set the course of events in this case on a very specific trajectory for quite a while. The investigator on Darlene's case was notified by another agency about a robbery that had occurred in Stark, Florida at approximately 8.40 p.m. the day after Darlene was abducted. Obviously, the reason they would want to check this out is because any similar robberies could be related. In this case, it involved two black males driving a gray Datsun 200SX. I'm sure the first thing that rang a bell here was the type of car. Remember, witnesses saw a light-colored Toyota or Datsun driving at a high rate of speed that night, hastily turning around near their house and speeding back the way it had come on the night of Darlene's abduction. This was just a few miles down the other crossroad from where the Suwanee Swifty store was located. Also, one witness near the store who lived at a local mobile home park said that he had seen two black males in a foreign car at the store sometime between 1230 and 1.30. All of that said, it becomes clear why this robbery piqued the interest of the investigators. This next bit is quoted from a summary report. The robbery was of a Suwannee Swifty, which was similar to another Suwannee Swifty, where our first incident occurred. The vehicle was similar in that we have two witnesses who advise they saw a gray Nissan or gray Toyota sports car. We met with Detective Adderhold, who advised that the robbery occurred, that they had fingerprints from the robbery, and some possible suspects, one being Tony and several other individuals that were related or known to him. I obtained the fingerprint evidence from Stark Sheriff's Office about the incident and was requested to check their fingerprints against some known person. Those fingerprints were checked with no identification affected. Now, after interviewing witnesses about this second robbery, the detective on Darlene's case stopped by a store and purchased gauze pads and distilled water. And then he went back to the Swift Creek Bridge where Darlene was found the day before. Here's his report entry related to what happened next. I poured distilled water on the bloodstains that had been covered and protected by crime scene deputies staying at the scene. I put the gauze pads on top of the bloodstains and let the bloodstains soak into the gauze pads. The gauze pads were then dried and put into a paper bag to be sent to the lab for comparison to the type of blood that was found to belong to the victim. Okay, I'm going to hope, beyond what is likely reasonable expectation given that this was 1989, that prior to pressing those gauze pads into the bloodstains covered in distilled water, the investigator put on some gloves. Let's just assume for our purposes that he did, and we'll get back to even how that could be an issue when you hear the next part I'm about to reveal. Some of this blood from the Swift Creek Bridge years later, once DNA testing became possible, would come back with two contributors, one consistent with Darlene Messer and another to a male subject. For now, we'll have to stick a pin in that one because it's a rabbit hole that will require its own section to explore. We'll go over the DNA findings later in the podcast. Let's get back to his report and how it's the 21st, the third day after the murder, one day after Darlene was found, and they're still chasing down another robbery suspect with a similar vehicle involved. After the investigator collected the blood evidence with the gauze pads, the report goes on to say, quote, I talked with Keith Adams, who had interviewed the store clerk at the Suwannee Swifty in Stark, Florida. We then went to the sheriff's office and talked with Pat Henry, and went and interviewed several witnesses. We went to Waldo, Florida, and spoke with the chief of police in Waldo about the incident, trying to find the location where the suspect lived and if he drove that type of vehicle. 
Next, regarding a composite drawing of a possible suspect in the vehicle by a witness who observed them at 4 p.m. Now remember, he's still talking about the other robbery scene, not the one at Darlene Messer's Suwani Swifty. Another witness saw the vehicle sitting at the driveway of a house behind the Suwani Swifty in Stark, Florida, with two black males in it before the incident occurred. The same black male that saw the suspects at 4 p.m. saw the suspects leaving at approximately 8.43 to 8.45 p.m. at a high rate of speed, going back to 3.01. Approximately two minutes later, he observed several sheriff's deputy cars pull up to the Suwannee Swifty, and apparently there was a robbery there within two minutes. After the robbery, they saw the suspects going down the road. After comparing some of the evidence, the shoe track that was seen at the crime scene in Stark looks similar to the shoe track found at the scene of the abduction in Lake City. That would be Darlene Messer's crime scene. Also, there were oil tracks. Some type of fluid was leaking from the vehicle. Oil, transmission, or power steering fluid, or something was leaking into the driveway of the suspect vehicle. The same is the case with the homicide scene and crime scene at the Swift Creek Bridge in Union County. On the same date, 92189 at approximately 10 p.m., I was contacted by the dispatch of the Columbia County Sheriff's Office and was advised that another robbery had occurred in Brooksville, Florida, and Hernando County and that the suspect vehicle in that case was possibly a 1982 gray Nissan 200SX. So now we have three robberies this investigator thinks could be related, and all within a few days. So I imagine that it felt like a whirlwind, particularly given that in his case, it wasn't just a robbery. He had a brutally murdered woman. Let me explain how that third robbery went down because I have that report. At approximately 10.05 p.m., the Shell gas station on I-75 and Cortez Boulevard in Brooksville, Florida, was robbed by an unknown black male wearing pantyhose over his face. He was armed with a small handgun. The clerk on duty had his back to the man he'd later describe as around 5'4 and 25 years old. The robber entered the business through the garage door and came into the office. He made it within a few feet of the clerk before he turned around to see the suspect pointing what he described as a 38 chrome handgun at him and demanding money. The clerk grabbed cash from the register and handed it to the robber, who fled the station and headed into the woods near I-75. According to the witness, the suspect jumped into a small compact vehicle being driven by another black male down I-75 on the northbound ramp. Then, these two witnesses did something that most law enforcement officers would advise against. They jumped into their car and followed the suspect vehicle. Thankfully, though, they only followed long enough that they could get the tag number, and then they turned off at a rest area to phone the sheriff's office, while the suspect vehicle continued down I-75. Two other witnesses would later say that they had seen the suspect vehicle stop at the Waffle House near the gas station, and a black male got out, walked behind the Waffle House, around an abandoned station nearby, and then onto the Shell Station property. They saw the man enter the main office area. In his report, that detective noted, quote, The witnesses obtained the tag number of the suspect vehicle, Florida tag being that of HCU44K, Alachua County plate, which is also what was seen on the suspect vehicle in Stark, Florida. Now they've got a tag, and they've got to track down the owner of that car because it's now implicated in two robberies. So two investigators went to the Alachua County, Columbia County line and sat there for about three hours checking all the vehicles in the northbound lane that matched the description, looking for this particular tag number. They waited and they waited to no avail. The next morning, though, the investigator got a call that the suspect vehicle had been located, parked at the Phoenix Apartments in Gainesville, Florida. So then they set up surveillance. Eventually, a black male that they would later learn was named Joe was observed coming out of the apartment. He walked toward the car, and then looked around before getting into the vehicle and pulling out of the apartment complex. Members of the Alachua County Sheriff's Office subsequently stopped and arrested him for driving on a suspended license. The vehicle was towed to later be searched for evidence related to the robberies and the murder of Darlene Messer. This suspect, Joe, is even mentioned in newspaper clippings from back in the day, as the 31-year-old they were questioning at the time. From the Calgary Herald, Dated September 28, 1989, a news article written by reporter Lisa Church was titled, Local Woman Slain in Florida. A 36-year-old Calgary woman waiting for her convenience store robber husband to be freed from a U.S. jail has died in a bizarre hostage-taking incident in Florida. 
She was abducted by her assailant September 18th as she worked the graveyard shift. She was probably killed the night she was taken from the store because her body had been in the creek for some time, said her shaken father, Ken Grant, a 52-year-old Trans-Alta Utilities worker in Calgary. Darlene, who in Calgary went by her mother's name of Tenny, had moved to Florida two years ago to marry her pen pal, a prison inmate serving a 12-year sentence for involvement in the robbery and shooting murder of a convenience store clerk. Isn't that just irony, Grant said. Grant said Charles Messer, who was serving his time in a nearby penitentiary, was scheduled for parole at the end of the month. The couple were married last year. You heard about this on the telephone, Grant added. Police reports say Messer was taken hostage at the Swanee Swifty convenience store around 1 a.m. on September 18th by an unknown assailant. A 31-year-old man is now in custody, awaiting questioning in the case. Darlene's mother, Helen, was visiting her daughter in Lake City when tragedy struck. Darlene was happy as a lark, he added. She never seemed to be worried about working the night shift. The casket, which will bring Darlene back to Calgary on Friday, has been sealed, said her father, adding that the family has not been allowed to see the body. That tells me she was so badly beaten, no one was to see her, he says, adding that Florida police have told him a knife was involved in the deadly assault. Regarding Darlene's pen pal husband, Charles Messer may have been in jail for robbing and murdering a convenience store clerk in Alabama, the prior crime that the court introduced in the case he would later get a death sentence on. But as far as I can see, he wasn't about to be getting out on parole. His case was busy winding its way through the courts, as it would for the next couple decades. Reading this makes me wonder what Charles Messer was telling his new bride about the status of his case. We've already established that he's quite manipulative. He lied to police and tried to implicate an innocent man in his crime. So it's entirely possible that Darlene had been led to believe that he was getting out soon. Maybe he even thought he would, but I don't believe there was ever a chance of that. By that time, he was already implicated in another murder. As far as the 31-year-old that they had in custody, this is Joe. That's the guy they were looking at, a guy who had already been tied to two other robberies in the area by a license plate tag on both suspect vehicles. But the thing is, when they searched it, police found nothing in the car that related to Darlene's murder. No blood, no hairs, nothing linking her to that vehicle at all. What they did learn was that the vehicle he got into after exiting the apartment was the vehicle driven by his girlfriend, Yvonne, and that vehicle was the one associated with the two robberies. So then they searched the girlfriend's apartment and found no evidence related to any of the cases either. Then police contacted his wife. She said that Joe never had any money, he didn't work, and she was thinking about divorcing him because she had found out that he had a girlfriend and did, in fact, have money because he'd been doing these robberies. Money she sure wasn't seeing, by the way. When investigators interviewed the girlfriend, she said that she had unknowingly vacuumed the car on the 21st. She had no idea that the vehicle may have been used in a crime. Police collected debris from the vacuum cleaner that she'd used to clean the inside of the car. When they tried to speak to Joe, he lawyered up immediately. The following is typed on a letterhead dated November 9th with Columbia County Sheriff Tom Trammell's header at the top, and it gives a brief summary of where they were around this time. On 9-1889 at approximately 12.54 a.m., the holdup alarm at the Suwannee Swifty convenience store on Highway 100 was activated. The nearest deputy was approximately 7 to 10 minutes away. Before arrival of the deputy, a subject stopped in the store and found that the clerk was not at the store and there appeared to have been a struggle. The subject then went to the next telephone and called 911. Upon arrival of the deputies, the cash register was hanging by the cord off the counter, and the counters were knocked back, merchandise was strewn behind the counter, and there was $35 in $5 bills found from behind the counter to the outside of the parking lot. The victim's vehicle was parked outside. Her purse containing money was still sitting in plain view behind the counter on a milk crate. The cash register was found to still contain money. Investigators were contacted and the store was processed for latent fingerprints, hairs, fibers, and shoe tracks. An extensive search for the victim began after the clerk was found to be missing and ended on the day that she was found. The clerk was found floating face down under the Swift Creek Bridge in Union County on State Road 100 in about two feet of water. Preliminary investigation appears that the suspect or suspects left the store headed towards Stark, Florida and turned around at the Swift Creek Bridge got into the returning lane, back toward Lake City, and stopped on top of the bridge, 
and threw the victim into the water from the top of the bridge. The vehicle involved appeared to be leaking oil onto the roadway at the time it was stopped. The location where the body was found is 13.7 miles from the store and four miles into Union County. The investigation was turned over to this department by Union County. The victim was fully clothed and was laying face down in the water. There was one white tennis shoe missing, along with one of the victim's gold post earrings and a silver chain with a St. Christopher medallion on it. The victim was beaten to death with a blunt object, and there were seven defensive stab wounds to the victim's left hand. The victim was severely beaten, and the wounds appear to be overkill. The weapon appears to have been a claw hammer or some other type weapon in that category. The victim was beaten beyond recognition and was apparently hit in the mouth area with the murder weapon, causing the skin to split from the corner of her mouth back past the area of her ear. The victim was identified by fingerprints and dental records. There are currently no definite suspects in this case, although there were one or two possible suspects. There were four persons who stopped at the store while returning home to Georgia. These four persons were at the store from approximately 12.40 a.m. to 12.55 a.m. As they began to leave, they almost backed into a vehicle, which they described as a 1976 Pontiac Grand Prix, brown in color, real raggedy, occupied by two black males. It is unknown if these persons are involved in this crime at this time. Any information obtained would be appreciated. Contact Investigator Kay Gallegos, Sergeant Randall Roberts, or Lieutenant James Wells. Now this statement, which appears to have been generated to distribute perhaps to other law enforcement entities, contains some pretty glaring inconsistencies. No statement, and let me repeat that, no statement that I have seen suggests that the Raggedy Grand Prix was occupied by two black males. In fact, the statement taken by the investigator who went to Georgia to interview the couple doesn't describe the people in the vehicle at all. The Georgia witnesses did not say they saw the person or persons in the vehicle at all. I think that there might have been some conflation between the two black males seen by the man at the nearby mobile home park and the information given by the Georgia couple. My theory about the information being conflated with the other information they were working at the time stems from a short note on one of these while you are away notepads that appears to be information to be followed up on. It notes the dark or rusty brown Grand Prix described at the scene by the Georgia couple, and at the bottom there is a notation that says two BMs, meaning black males, slash raggedy looking. Now remember, it was the car that was described in multiple reports as raggedy looking, and nowhere in it when the witnesses were interviewed, do they describe seeing anyone in that car? There's also a note at the bottom of the handwritten note that says re-interview, dated 10-16-89. So raggedy-looking always applied to the car, as far as all the witness statements, not raggedy-looking black males in the car. I'd like to read the handwritten statement from that Georgia couple taken by an investigator who actually traveled to Georgia to speak with them, so you can see exactly what they told police. The interview was conducted on 11-13-89, about two months after Darlene's murder. During this interview, I questioned the witnesses who advised the following. On 9-18-89, at approximately 12-25 p.m., the witnesses and another couple were en route to Palatka on a fishing trip. They stopped at the Suwannee Swifty on the way. While at the store, they bought coffee and several other items. They remembered seeing the correctional officers, and they had asked the clerk to use the restroom. They stated they sat on the tailgate of the Bronco until approximately 12.53 a.m. They state that they were backing out of their parking place and a vehicle was pulling through the parking lot and they nearly backed into it. As they were pulling out of the parking lot onto Highway 100, they noticed that the vehicle pulled into a parking place on the north side of the store. This would have been the last parking place on the north side and out of sight of the store clerk. This was approximately two to three minutes before the alarm was activated. The suspect vehicle was described as follows, 1976 or 1977 Pontiac Grand Prix, rust-colored, further described as a little darker than Heinz 57 sauce. Vehicle was reported to be raggedy-looking with possibly a darker or lighter-colored vinyl top that was not in very good condition. So as you can see, nowhere in their full statement does it say anything about even seeing who was in the vehicle at all. Only a description of the raggedy-looking Grand Prix. 
Now, aside from all that, something that jumped out at me from that letter that I read you from the sheriff's office was that cash was still found in the register. That, along with crime scene images, show $5 bills dropped all over the floor from the cash register to the parking lot, sort of makes you wonder if this guy or guys know what the hell they're doing. Did he or they get scared somehow? Was the original intent actually a robbery at all? If your intent is robbery, don't you take all the money? We have no indication that the robber or robbers were interrupted. Why so sloppy if this is someone with criminal experience? Someone who's already robbed stores before, like this suspect Joe that they're looking at now. Maybe it's a single perpetrator and he's dropping money all over the place because he decides he needs to take the clerk hostage for some reason known only to him and he can't seem to get it all done in a tidy manner with only two hands, but given what we know about the unlikelihood of a gun being used, how does one guy think he's going to be able to abduct a woman and rob a store alone? But if there's two guys robbing a store, I assume one's getting the money and the other one's handling the hostage. And there were also cigarette lighters scattered all over the floor and at least one dropped in the parking lot. Really? You need lighters too? What are these rubes doing, grabbing shit as they drag Darlene out of the store? And what about that abandoned belt with one end looped almost all the way through? What the hell happened there? I don't know, this sure doesn't sound like Joe and his accomplice, just based on what we know from police reports. Their robberies were more quick, in and out. That's what tends to happen when you've got a gun on someone. Things go pretty quick. If Joe was their guy, the guy who killed Darlene, this wasn't Joe's first rodeo. He was known to law enforcement. And I just don't see him as a type to be leaving cash and cigarette lighters around the crime scene, unless something went horribly wrong. Does this really look like the work of someone who's done this a few times? Or is it something else? Let's take a look at Joe's crimes, the ones I have reports for anyway, and what police knew about him around the time of the murder. When they processed the vehicle that he'd been driving, that 1982 gray Nissan 200SX, they found hairs and fibers, none of which linked Darlene with the vehicle. Latent print testing also came up negative. However, in the trunk, they found a briefcase described as an oxblood-colored case with a combination lock with initials JT on the front. Inside it was an H&R 929 sidekick, 32 caliber pistol. It was loaded and described as blue steel. They also found a loaded Smith & Wesson 38 caliber nickel-plated snub-nosed revolver. They found a nylon stocking, a brown cotton work glove, left-handed, a brown-handled knife, some papers belonging to Joe, and another Columbia County car tag, in addition to the one attached to the vehicle with another number. So basically a robbery kit, although one could argue you could also call it a kill kit, I guess. The nylon stocking supported the witness account at the other Sewanee Swifty that was held up after Darlene. Because in both the Shell Station and the other Sewanee Swifty store robberies, a second blackmail suspect had been mentioned, police began looking into known associates of Joe, trying to find another way to link him to Darlene's case, since they came up empty on the physical evidence and Joe had lawyered up. When I mentioned that this wasn't Joe's first rodeo, in addition to the two robberies they had him in custody for after Darlene's murder, there's also a report connecting him to a burglary of a residence, where a bunch of jewelry was stolen, and he eventually pawned it and was arrested doing that months later in July. He had a lawyer at that time, and he was booked into the Alachua County Adult Detention Center, but his lawyer must have been worth his hourly fee because Joe was out months later to do the other burglaries. The police report on that case mentioned that while Joe had admitted to selling the property, he said he didn't do the burglaries, he just bought stolen merchandise from someone else. It appears that they didn't have enough evidence to link him to that robbery. And the same thing would happen here. Police may have thought he looked good for Darlene Messer's murder, but they didn't have the evidence to make a case. They didn't have any evidence, really, except a description of a similar car to the one he'd been driving in the area of Price Creek Road, and they couldn't even put a black male in that vehicle, or really explain why the robbers would have gone down Price Creek Road in the first place and then head back in the other direction. I mean, the whole thing just didn't make sense. It was pretty flimsy. And when you think about it, Joe had done armed robberies, but abduction and murder seemed a bit out of his wheelhouse. Not that it couldn't have come to that if something went wrong. I mean, if you've got a gun and you're holding up a store, literally anything could happen. People die. It, it happens. So anyway, Darlene's case trundled on, 
and police looked into other suspects that I will look into in future episodes. Meanwhile, Joe cooled his feet in jail for the other robberies, and it wasn't until 1993, four years after Darlene's murder, that a witness came forward who focused police attention back on not only Joe, but an associate of his, who we're going to call T. August 25th, 1993, four years after Darlene's murder, the lead investigator on her case got an anonymous tip that named three people the caller said had been involved in the murder of Darlene Messer. It should be noted that none of these three was Joe, the guy police looked at early on in the other robberies. These were three different names, all black males. According to the investigator's typed report, the tipster said it had started as a robbery, but at some point the victim snatched the mask off one of the suspects, so they abducted and shortly thereafter killed her. According to the same report, this call led the investigator to the wife of one of the three named suspects in the tip, and she was separated from him at the time and confirmed that he had told her that he and some other guys had murdered the store clerk in Lake City, Florida. According to the investigator's typed report, the girlfriend said that he told her they were robbing the store and the victim pulled the mask off one of the subjects and they took her away in the vehicle. Now I'm sure that mask bit jumped right out to investigators like one of those Pop Goes the Weasel toys that horrifies children, given that Joe had worn a mask during his robberies and they'd actually found it in his car when they seized it. But again, Joe was not on that initial list of names given by the tipster. This woman, the wife of one of the men who was named, said that he also told her that they were driving down the road and she gave a fourth name of a person who was driving and said he turned around and shot the woman and then they put her in a creek. This is the first time that Joe's name comes up, this fourth name now. Her ex, who we're calling T, was incarcerated at the time. He'd been convicted in Union County, Florida in 1991 for armed robbery and aggravated battery when he beat a drug dealer in the head with a hammer and then robbed him, which is probably most of what you need to know in order to develop an understanding of this person of interest. Also, hello, did someone say hammer? Now I'm going to recreate an interview with the investigator on Darlene Messer's case and one of the exes of the suspect we're calling T. All I know is told me he was there when it happened. And that's your husband? Right. Did he tell you who else was there with him? And the third person, I don't know. There were three people. I forgot who the third person was. He probably told me the name, but I forgot. Okay, did tell you exactly what happened or why it happened or what they were doing or why he was involved. He was telling me about he was robbing. He'd worked all his life and never got nowhere and all this kind of stuff. And then he told me, um, he told me that this ain't his first time he did something like this. And to prove it, he was trying to prove it to me that night. You know, he was robbing. And, and to prove it, he said, remember when came to the house that night to, uh, uh, with the guns in his trunk, you know, to rob somebody, he said, Do you remember that being September the 18th or 1989? I mean, after you heard about the abduction and the homicide? I know he was talking about that girl in Lake City. He said, um, you know, things in Lake City and the white girl got killed. He said he was with when he did it. When did that happen? Do you remember back when came to the house? Was it about that time when she was abducted? Or It had to be kind of early because, was it a Friday night? I believe it was a Sunday night. Sunday night? be home. It had to be about 9.30, but I, I don't know for sure. It had to be kind of early. Okay. Did they go in car? No. Your car? No, he didn't leave. He told me that he had gone through the trunk and he's talking about robbing somebody and he didn't do that kind of stuff. He told me that was crazy and he wasn't going to go with him and he didn't go. Okay. Was there another night? He's saying that he was with him when he... It's that same night. The night she got killed. It's the night came by my house to get to ride with him. Whatever he's going to do. I, I thought, go to a club and hang out or something. Did go off with him? No, he didn't go. And he came back and he told me about he had guns in his trunk. And, and that's what he said. Talking about had somebody and I don't do this kind of stuff. If he told you he was with him the night it happened, I, I don't understand. Okay. He told me that night. He told me he was not going with 
cops because is a crazy person and he had guns in his trunk and he ain't going with him. He didn't go. But we had two cars and I think later on that night he did leave. So whether or not he got in with then, I don't know. The only reason I say that he might have been with him because now he's telling me. He told me back in March he told me he was with him. When the robbery occurred and the abduction occurred. Yeah, he told me, remember, just like I'm trying to remember. Remember, I left, you know, I went with him. Did he say why they killed her? He said that, yeah, he mentioned about, he was saying about this is crazy and she saw somebody's face. I think his face and he grabbed her and threw her in the car. And he told me that he was in the back seat and the girl was in the back seat and was driving and somebody else was in the front. And then he asked, why'd you bring that bitch? And said, I don't know. And then he turned around and shot her in the car. So... Well, I don't know. What kind of car did you have back then that he might have used? 82 Buick Sentry. What color was it? Maroon. And did it burn a short time after that? I think so. I think it did. I know it burned out, but I can't remember how soon after that it happened. Okay, I just want to stop and fact check this as we go along because there's a lot to take in. And if I wait till the end and do it, you'll just forget half the stuff. So... Obviously, a maroon car would stand out since a dark red car was seen in the Suwannee Swifty parking lot a couple minutes before the alarm went off. But I have the police report on that burnt car, and it's dated 7-29-89, two months before Darlene Messer was abducted and killed. So that car that TZX is talking about could not have been driven that night. The report notes that T was driving at home one night, and he noticed fire coming out of the rear of the vehicle. He stopped, he got out, and according to the report, he called the fire department. The cause of the fire is listed as unknown. Now, whether the fire itself was suspicious and T was burning it because it could have been associated with another robbery, I have no idea. But that car cannot be associated with Darlene Messer's case. So the interview continued and the officer asked about other robberies that T may have committed with the men that she mentioned. And the woman offered as much as she could recall, which reading it does seem like a jumble of possible robberies that she knew very scant little bits of information about. None of it was very specific. In 1991, when your husband was charged with armed robbery in Union County and aggravated battery, can you tell me what happened on that? Was it a Friday night? It was Friday night. He probably got paid and didn't come home. Something. He did that a lot because he's on drugs. Crack. And all I know is the next morning somebody called me and said that he robbed Lopez, who is a drug dealer. He stole my car. I remember now he stole my car and I reported it stolen. And the next morning somebody called me and told me he had robbed Lopez and... I told him that he probably went to Orlando. When I found out what he did, he beat him in the head with a hammer and took money and drugs. And when I got my van back, it had blood in it and evidence where he was smoking crack. Did you see any blood in the back of your 82 Buick? No. Can you think of anything else that we haven't asked you about that you know about? He told me one thing about the Lake City case. He said they put pig's blood in the car. So when he mixed it with her blood, you couldn't tell a difference. He told me that's what did, that's what he told him to keep from knowing he did it. Okay, uh, the belt that I showed you a picture of, all right, last time I talked to you, you told me it looked familiar. Do you think that might possibly be belt? It might, because when I looked at it, I couldn't say that it wasn't his belt. I, I thought I could look at it and, you know. Okay, but you're willing to look at that belt and tell us if it's his. Uh-huh. Okay, can you think of anything else? He told me, okay, he, there's... He liked white women, okay, and I found some hair in our car, and I was arguing at him about it, and a comb with a white woman hair in it, and he told me, he told me that the Lake City thing here, uh, he said that was her comb. Was that in the maroon car? Yeah. A short time after the murder occurred? That I found the hair? I don't remember. Okay, did you ever see a shoe in your car? Just one shoe by itself, or an earring? Well, I find earrings all the time, so I won't remember. It's mashed in. Is it supposed to be mashed in like that? No, this one is mashed in, but the other one would probably be round. Ever see any earrings in your car like that, or that style? I don't remember. Did you ever find a shoe in your car? I don't think so. It was 1989. I don't remember if I saw a shoe. Do you have a picture of it? Yeah, bottom of it. Size of it. What size? I don't think... There's one. Just one shoe. I don't know. Is there anything else you can remember? 
He said they had, that's how they got the comb in my car, that he had her. Okay, the hair that you found in the car on the comb was hers, and you found it in your maroon car? No, uh-uh, no, it was in my, I had an eye mark, it was in my car. A Suzu eye mark with tinted windows. Okay, so the pig's blood thing is interesting, to say the least, but I've seen no indication that any of the DNA tests came back showing animal blood mixed with human blood. That would have been quite the tell. Also, we have no description of any car around the Suwannee Swifty that looked like a maroon Isuzu eye mark with tinted windows from any witnesses at all. Now, this woman would be called in again in May of 2000, over 10 years after Darlene's murder. What, what we're talking about was a robbery that took place in Columbia County back in 1989. Y'all were separated when he was telling you all about this, right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember why he started. He was telling me that he, that I didn't know him and he, you know, he was telling me some bad things that happened in his life. If I remember right, it, I mean, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. I understand that. But, um, he told me about the robbery in, um, Orlando and he told me about the Lake City thing. Okay, on the Lake City thing, what, what kind of stuff did he tell you about that? He told me that a boy did kill that girl. Who's that boy? Um, Okay, uh, did he say how he killed her? What method he used? I don't know. I remember something about a hammer. I don't know if the... Something about a hammer? Yeah, a police officer told me that. Something. Let me just jump in here and say that in her other interview, the only time she mentioned a hammer is when she discussed her ex-husband's beating of that drug dealer, Lopez, and the crime for which he was incarcerated. At no time did she associate a hammer with Darlene's case. Whether she had discussions with a member of law enforcement outside of the formal interviews about a hammer is unknown. But just the fact that she's saying a police officer told me that would be concerning if she was a witness to be deposed. A defense attorney would have a field day with that. Okay, did he say who was sitting where in the car? No. Did he say any reason they had to take her out of the store? I don't remember. Something to do with the... Did she pull his mask? Did he... I remember something about a mask, but I don't know if it's because y'all mentioned it to me or he told me. Yeah, but the mask. Did he mention a mask was mentioned somewhere along the line? Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's the reason that, uh, that she was killed? Was that what he said? I remember him just telling me that that boy was crazy, that he killed that girl. So here's another instance where it does not appear that the witness is using her own words regarding the mask but being led, however gently, to say it. I went back in the initial interview transcript to look up mask, and she didn't use that word at all. Here's what she said. Roberts. Okay, did he say why they killed her? Woman. He said that, yeah, he mentioned about it. He said about is crazy, and she saw somebody's face. I think his face, and he grabbed her and threw her in the car. Now, one could argue that this statement does imply some sort of face covering, but she never said mask. And these are things that on the stand would have really tripped up the prosecution of any case against Joe and T. There is such scant evidence against Joe and T to begin with. As I read these transcripts of witnesses, I found myself cringing even before I read the DNA results. Still, for police, when you have actual human beings coming to you and telling you a story that does sort of include some elements that fit your case, you're compelled to take it as far as you can. Yeah, um, and that was in, was it in the car where he said that, uh, he killed her? I don't know. But I do remember the part about blood being in, in the car and he put some kind of animal's blood in the car. Where was the blood at in the car? On the roof, I don't know. Really? On the roof? Did you see a stain on there? No, in my car? Yeah. No. Whose car was it that they... I don't know, I don't know the reason I was thinking my car because my car burned up suspiciously. I don't even remember if it was the same night, but, uh... I remember my car was just not there anymore. It was burned up. But then, I don't... It couldn't have been the same night. Because I do remember finding an earring, though it could have been a different... Yeah, you mentioned something to me over the phone about an earring and a comb. Uh-huh. They showed me something. They showed me a picture of a belt that looked familiar. They showed me an earring and it looked familiar. Uh-huh. Because I remember finding that earring in my car and it was a match to it. Oh, really? Where was it? In the back seat or the front seat or on the floor? Mm, just in my car, on the floor, in the front probably I found it. It's probably the driver's side in the front. Just as a note, in her first interview, she never said anything about the earring she found being a match to it. Where was the the hair comb? Where was that? Comb was just in the car. You remember what color it was? Uh-uh. 
And you said, what, you said something about hair in the comb? White girl's hair. Could you tell what color it was? Was it black? No, it was light. More light color than dark. Light. Was it long or short? Kind of long. About, you know, as long as your hair? Uh-huh. Probably about, what's yours? Down or two about your ears? Yeah. Okay, so he told you that had killed her, possibly with a hammer. He told me something about a hammer. Yeah, she mentioned no such thing in the first recorded interview. Nothing about the hammer except for her ex using it on the drug dealer. Again, nothing to do with Darlene Messer's murder. But it is telling that police are harping on that. It might indicate that, certainly this long after the murder, some 10 years, that they think it could be the murder weapon, a hammer, given what we discussed about the blunt force injuries in a previous episode. But listen to me now, I said might. That is speculation on my part, and I want to make sure that's on record. Um, basically, the reason was that somebody, something happened to someone's mask in the store. Did they mention someone else being with them? Again, I hate to keep harping on the mask thing, but she never said mask on her own. That word was fed to her by the questioner. Now, perhaps it's a strategy that I'm not aware of. At any rate, it would likely be problematic if a law clerk tasked to search for such inconsistencies in transcripts handed that little nugget over to her boss and told him to, no pun intended, hammer this witness on the stand. If I could ferret that out, I am certain that they would have. Seems to me like there was somebody else with him, but I don't know who. Okay, after you said that uh, killed her, what did he say that they did with her? They dumped her over the bridge. And uh, did he say where at, on what road or anything? 100 between Lake City and Lake Butler. At that time, you remember it was in the newspaper about her? Uh-huh. Did he say that that was the one that they had done, the one that was in the newspaper? I don't remember him saying much about it. But did he say it was over a bridge on 100? Uh-huh. Did he give you any kind of minor details, maybe, on how they stopped the car, or when they threw her off the bridge, or what took place there? Was she already dead, or, you know, did she make a big splash, or any comments like that? Uh-uh. Did, um, I'm sorry, Are you, were you going to say something? I was just wondering if she was raped, because that's something I don't know. I might be confusing. Well, we can go back to that. You had talked about clothing before, in your first time you were talked to. Uh-huh. Um, about the clothing that the person wore, or did you not? Um. Did he tell you anything about clothing? I don't remember that. Okay, um, can you go ahead and anything else you might remember? Did he tell you about the money they may have gotten out of it or... No. Or if they didn't get any money because of what they did or... Uh-uh. Was the guy that was with them, um, last name maybe Jackson or something like that? I don't know. Okay, but did he for sure say that it was a convenience store? Uh-huh. In Lake City. Uh-huh. And that they took the girl out of there. Uh-huh. Uh, could you speak up just a little? Yes. That they had to kill her because of a mask incident, something to do with a mask of some sort. I don't know about that. Okay. I really don't know, but I know he told me about something that happened in Orlando... And he said that this was uh, And he said that he... He told me that he shot somebody. In Orlando. Yeah, and he said the reason is because of... While he was robbing the place, he, he started raping the girl. Oh. So then I asked you about this girl. Uh-huh. Okay. Um. Okay, so here's the thing. This T fellow appears to have told his ex about a bunch of robberies, and it's possible that she has gotten some aspects of some confused with others. You can literally hear her confusion as the interview continues. It goes on for a few more pages with a lot of repetition that doesn't go anywhere except to reveal that T first told her this story in 92 or 93, three or four years after the murder of Darlene Messer. And then the investigator had a few more tries at the old hammer topic. So he told you it was the girl in the convenience store in Lake City and that killed her. And with a hammer. 
Where did I get hammer from? Oh, I think the police told me about the hammer. Oh, okay. Because, and, and then I was thinking, well, I know hit, you probably know history. He hit Lopez with a hammer. Uh-huh. Almost killed somebody with a hammer. And I was like, okay, if that's weapon of choice. Did he mention hammer to him? Did No. Since he told you about this killing, did he ever talk about it again? No, sir. Did anybody else ever talk about it to you? Uh-uh. You've only been talked to by law enforcement. This is only the second time. Well, I'm the second time you've been spoken to. Uh-huh. Okay. And it seems like back in 89, he was saying that the boy didn't do it, you know. But then in 92, he was like, yeah, he did it. Oh, really? So when you talked to this officer, he hadn't told you this yet then, had he? Hadn't told me what? That they, indeed, that they killed this particular girl from the store. No, he had told me. If it was 93, he had to have told me. Okay, um... Well, you're not the only person he's told the story to. But I'm going to briefly run it down one more time just to make sure we've got it together. In 1983, you were interviewed by Randy Roberts with the Columbia County Sheriff's Office. Uh-huh. Um, okay, now you're... What you're telling me... What you're telling me now is basically the same that you told him then. That, uh came to you and point blank that he and robbed the store, the convenience store in Lake City, took the girl out of the store and killed her on Highway 100 on the way back to Lake Butler. And after she was killed, they stopped the car on a bridge and threw her off the bridge. Did he say into the water or just off the bridge? I don't remember if it was just um, common knowledge back then if she was found on the bridge or... But did he tell you they, they took her out of the store? Uh-huh. Killed her, not... That's what he told me. Okay, and then they got rid of her. Uh, now the bridge thing. Think for a minute and think if he said they threw her off the bridge. Uh, that was probably common knowledge, threw her out. And, uh, he must have known you knew something about the killing anyhow to tell you about it. Uh, probably in the paper or something. Uh-huh. Did he mention the newspaper? Uh-huh. And then after they killed her, they disposed of the body. Basically, we'll say that. Does that sound better? Yeah. And that the next day or the day after, in your vehicle, you found an earring that matched one that was shown to you by Randy Roberts back in 1993. And a hairbrush, or a hair comb, I'm sorry, that had white woman's hair in it and was probably three or four inches long. Like that, somewhere around there, and it was light colored? Uh-huh. Um, was it like a man's comb, you know, like a man carries in his back pocket? Or was it, a like a bigger pick style? A flat comb like this. Okay, I haven't, I haven't seen it either. Um, and you didn't find any other items in your car? Uh-uh. Okay, and no blood that you recall seeing? Uh-uh. Your car just happened to burn up. How many days after that? I don't know, I don't remember. It was pretty shortly after, though, wasn't it? Uh-huh. No, it wasn't. And I'm sure police were disappointed when they located that old police report on the burned-up vehicle and saw the date. The case against Joe and T was disintegrating before their eyes. But the investigator was right in that there was another witness who said T had told her about doing this murder. The one with, quote, the white lady in Lake City. On February 14, 1996, Another former girlfriend of one of the suspects in Darlene's homicide, who lived with him in the mid-90s, said that he told her, quote, a wild story about a lady that they put in a lake or a river. She was dead. He said they had to kill her because she saw one of their faces and they took her from the store. From what she was told, Darlene was killed in the car. In her statement, she said that he'd come home one night really high on drugs when they were living together and he told her a story about how he and his partners had robbed a store and gotten rid of a lady. He said one of the guys had somehow had their masks come off, but she wasn't clear on if Darlene had pulled it off or if it had been removed some other way. According to her, he said if the mask wouldn't have come off, she'd still be alive. The woman said that this had occurred before they'd gotten together, and she said it was like he was confessing to things from his past and that he got to talking like that when he was real high. According to her, he said that there were four guys all together, and he never mentioned any struggle with Darlene in the store, just that they had taken her. This girlfriend alleged that it was he that killed Darlene, not the guy who was driving, according to the other girlfriend. She thought one of the guys had been killed since Darlene's murder and another was in prison. 
He'd given her details of what Darlene had been wearing and told her that if she wanted to get back at him or turn him in, she could tell police what he told her. She also had a car that came into question, a white four-door Toyota, which would tend to match the description of the car going at a high rate of speed around Price Creek Road near the crime scene. Unfortunately, title documents indicate that she bought the car well after Darlene's murder. While her story was quite similar to the other ex, hers also had inconsistencies, including clothing descriptions, and she said that there were four men present. And we're not even done with the exes yet. There was one final ex, this time an ex of Joe. Apparently, police chatted up the exes of a few of these guys. So remember Joe's girlfriend from earlier, the one whose car he was driving when he got popped? Well, it appears that she kept a diary, and in that diary, she had written down that Joe did indeed used to drive her car, the Datsun 200SX, that matched the description of the light-colored compact vehicle seen by the ladies around Price Creek Road. In fact, she had an entry that suggested that he was driving it on that day, the day that Darlene was abducted. Police even obtained a copy of the diary for evidence. Unfortunately, that car had already been searched, so that evidence really wasn't worth much to them. And as it is wont to do, technology eventually won the day. According to law enforcement, Joe and T have been ruled out by DNA testing that was done in recent years on the cigarette butts and the belt left at the scene, in addition to the blood evidence at the Swift Creek Bridge. Joe and T, they don't match any of it. There is zero sign of either of them having been at either crime scene. Nothing was ever able to put either of those men at the Suwannee Swifty store the night Darlene was abducted. No witnesses, no physical evidence, nothing. When I inquired specifically regarding the two black male suspects, that police appear to have made their prime suspects for some time, I was told that Joe and T, quote, were ruled out by DNA. Next week, we'll talk more suspects. Stay tuned. <laughs>